Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. For you, I want to invite you to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 23. Luke chapter 23. As you're turning there, some of you have probably never heard of a man named J. Bruce Ismay. J. Bruce Ismay. He was a British businessman who was the chairman and managing director of White Star Line. Now, you probably never heard of White Star Line, but White Star Line is the company that owned and built the Titanic. Ismay would often take maiden voyages on the ships that his company would build, and the Titanic was no different. And so Ismay was aboard the Titanic, and rumor had it that he was pressuring the captain to go faster than what the Titanic probably should have been going, and that led to one of the causes of the Titanic crashing into that iceberg on that fateful evening of April 14th, 1912. Now, we know what happened with the Titanic. It hit the iceberg. But here's what happened. J. Bruce Ismay basically got rid of all of the protocol for women and children first and began pushing the women and children away. And he and his aristocratic, his wealthy friends started jumping into the lifeboats. And so as the Titanic is going down, he's watching it go down from the lifeboat that he had pushed people out of the way to get into. Well, this got word back to England and America after the dust settled. The press began to attack him, and he was nicknamed the Coward of the Titanic. Or he was also nicknamed J. Brute Ismay. He was lampooned negatively in the press, in newspapers. He was this man who did not allow women and children to go first, and he furiously refused to admit that this actually happened. He said it was way overblown. But London society ostracized Ismay, the coward of cowards, the coward of the Titanic. Now, you've probably known some famous cowards over the years, haven't you? The cowardly lion from The Wizard of Oz. You could say he was a coward. McFly from Back to the Future, he was a coward. You could also say maybe C-3PO is a coward. And my two favorite cowards of all time, Shaggy and Scooby. (laughs) Now, why do I bring up cowards this morning? Why do I bring up famous cowards like the coward of the Titanic? What we're going to see today as we continue through the Gospel of Luke is the greatest act of cowardice by none other than Pontius Pilate. We're going to pick up right where we left off last week. And last week we asked the ultimate question, who is Jesus? And from the trial before Pilate, the trial before the Sanhedrin, the trial before Herod, we saw five descriptions. Jesus is the suffering servant. Jesus is the Son of Man. Jesus is the innocent Lamb of God. Jesus is Christ the King. And Jesus is Sovereign Lord. 
And so we're going to continue to see things unfold this morning. But what I want to do is I want to do two things this morning. First, I just want to read the narrative account at face value and explain kind of what's going on. But then I want us to go deeper and look at three wonderful truths that this passage of Scripture teaches us about Jesus. And we're going to still continue on this theme, who is Jesus? So let's read together. Let's pick up where we left off last week. Luke chapter 23, starting in verse 13. Luke chapter 23, starting in verse 13. Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers of the people and said to them, You brought me this man as one who was misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish and release him. But they all cried out together, Away with this man, and release to us Barabbas, a man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city and for murder. Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus, but they kept shouting, Crucify! Crucify Him! The third time He said to them, Why? What evil has He done? I have found in Him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release Him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that He should be crucified. And their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, for whom they asked, but he delivered Jesus over to their will. So Pilate has undergone a thorough legal examination of Jesus and has found him not guilty of the charges. He hasn't been an insurrectionist. I don't find him guilty of bringing trouble to the nation. I find him innocent of the charges that you're accusing him of. And surprisingly, Pilate says Herod has also found Jesus innocent. So Pilate's in a predicament because Pilate knows he has to do something with Jesus because he has a bloodthirsty crowd. But he doesn't think Jesus is worthy of death. So so Pilate says, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to have him scourged. I'm going to have him flogged. And then I'll release him. That's what the word punish means in verse 16, whipped or scourged. But this does not satisfy the bloodthirsty crowd. For in verse 18, what do they say? Away with this man. In the original language, away with this man means basically execute him. Give him the death sentence. Send him off to execution. Now here is something amazing in this bloodthirsty crowd. They would rather let an insurrectionist, a terrorist, and a murderer named Barabbas go free, who is a known criminal, than to let Jesus go free. In all four Gospels, Barabbas is mentioned as one who goes free. So Pilate's shocked. He tries to change their mind. Again, he says, hey, listen, don't, don't release this criminal. Let me just have Jesus beaten. Let me have him scourged, and then I'll release him. But then verse 21, what do we see? In verse 21, they kept shouting, crucify, crucify him. This eerie, ominous, repeated chant 
Can you picture it in your minds? The bloodthirsty crowd, this ominous chant, crucify, 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 intensifying, getting louder and louder. And the third time, Pilate says, for the third time, Jesus is innocent. I find nothing in him that would be guilty of the charges that you're bringing against him. He is an innocent man. But there's cowardice on Pilate's part because we see, verse 23, they were urgent. They were persistent. They were insistent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified. And their voices prevailed. Their voices won over. In other words, Pilate was defeated and overpowered by the persistent yelling, urging of this bloodthirsty crowd. So what does Pilate do? In an act of cowardice, the coward of cowards, he releases Barabbas, a vile terrorist and murderer who committed murder in Jerusalem, the Bible says, in the city. Let's Barabbas go free, a man who's on death row, and then sentences Jesus to crucifixion. But I want you to notice what Luke says there. Look at how he ends this narrative. Look at how, how he ends this section. Very interesting wording. Verse 25, he released the man, that's Barabbas, who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, for whom they asked, but notice this, but he delivered Jesus over to their will. Pilate finally surrendered to the will of the people. Which leads to an interesting theological question. Was the crucifixion of Jesus due to the bloodthirsty will of the people? Or was it due to the will of God? Whose will is being, being played out here? Well, the answer is both. We, we looked at this last week, but we'll look at it again. Acts four twenty seven through 28. For truly in the city... Jerusalem, they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So Pilate acted with cowardice. Herod acted with malice. The Jewish leaders acted with wickedness. And the Roman soldiers acted with sadistic glee. They they exercise their will in the crucifixion of Jesus. The will of the people. But behind it and underneath it and over it all, it was the will of the Father, the predestined sovereign will of God for the crucifixion to take place. It was God's will. It was the bloodthirsty will of the people, yes, that led to the crucifixion of Jesus. But above that, it was also the sovereign will of Almighty God whose plan and purpose was from eternity for His Son to die on the cross. Isaiah 53.10, again, written 700 years before Jesus died on the cross, a prophecy. Yet it was the will of the Lord. It was the will of the Lord to crush Him. It was God's will to crush Him, Jesus, on the cross. He's put Him to grief when His soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hands. So there you have the narrative. It's pretty easy to understand. Three times, Pilate says, innocent, innocent, innocent. But yet, does Jesus go free? No, who goes free? 
the wicked, Barabbas, the vile terrorist and murderer, gets to go off scot-free while Jesus goes to the cross. So in other words, there's an exchange happening here. The will of the people, it was an exchange. A murderer for the innocent Jesus, an exchange took place. The releasing of Barabbas, exchange for Jesus. So I want us, as I thought about this passage of Scripture, I want us to think deeply about this exchange. What's really going on here? When you look at really what's going on here, what's happening in this releasing of Barabbas? What's the picture? What's the spiritual application? I want us to think deeply about that because there's a passage of Scripture that really brings all of this into focus. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. This verse packs a punch. What does it tell us? Number one, Jesus is sinless. Number two, He became sin. He took on our sin even though He didn't sin. In our place, and number three, so that we might be righteous. We might have the righteousness of God. So this one verse gives us the truth of the gospel. Narrows it down to one little passage of what Jesus has done for us in his death, burial, and resurrection. How can you and I be right with the holy God through the death of Jesus in our place, the sinless Savior? So what I want us to do is, from this passage of Scripture, this great exchange... Barabbas for Jesus, I want us to see three wonderful truths. These are more theological truths. These are more biblical truths, but they're powerful truths that I think should bring us joy and hope and confidence and assurance this Christmas season. Do you remember the old slogan, it takes a licking and keeps on ticking? I'm not wearing a Timex right now, but it's Timex watch. You know, Timex has kind of been known for the, being those durable watches. But back during the Cold War, back in the 1950s, when there was fear of going to war with Russia, when people were building bomb shelters, this company called Krauss and Heinz manufactured what was called an explosion-proof wall clock. It weighed 40 pounds. It had a shatterproof cover. And even during a nuclear explosion, it says it would keep on keeping time. Okay, so aren't you glad that if you, if you go through a nuclear explosion, at least you're going to have a clock that can still keep time. Takes a lick and it keeps on ticking. Perfect time. Many watches claim to keep perfect time. You know, Ringo Starr was you know, the drummer of the Beatles. He was known to have perfect time. He's one of the greatest drummers of all time. Not a fancy drummer, but he could keep perfect time. Now, we throw the word perfect around a lot, don't we? Especially about the Olympics. Do you realize it wasn't until 1976 nobody had ever gotten a perfect score in the Olympics until a little Romanian girl, Nadia Comaneci, gymnast. She didn't just get one perfect score. She got seven perfect tens in the Olympics the first time ever. Which leads us to ask a question. Is there such thing as true perfection? I mean, genuine perfection. Even with scoring in the Olympics, there, there, there's, is there really true perfection? Well, yes, there is. His name is Jesus. So let's explore these three wonderful truths this morning, and this is the first. First, Jesus lived 
the perfect life we could never live. He lived the perfect life we could never live. You can't escape this passage of Scripture that three times Pilate says he's innocent. He's not guilty. I find in him no crime. He is innocent. Now, yes, he was innocent of insurrection, and Pilate was a coward for releasing Barabbas. But we also know the truth of the Bible that Jesus is the sinless, perfect Son of God. He lived the perfect life that we can never live. And this, is, this blows me away when I think about the perfect life of Jesus. He was perfect in thought, word, and deed. Never had a bad thought. When his mom asked him to take the trash out, he did not cuss her out in his head. He never had a bad word. He's with Joseph in the carpenter shop and hits a hammer on his hand and nothing flies out of his mouth. Perfect in thought, word, and deed. Now this was announced by the angel Gabriel to Mary. As we celebrate Christmas, back at the beginning of Luke, Luke 1.35, the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. He will be the Holy, sinless Son of God. Jesus makes a very interesting statement in John 8.29. Jesus said, And he who sent me is with me, talking about the Father, He, the Father, has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to Him. Anybody here can say that? I always do the things that are pleasing to the Father. Can anybody say that? Only Jesus. Jesus always does what is pleasing to the Father because He is perfect. And then Peter comments on this issue with Barabbas when he's preaching in Acts chapter 3. Acts 3, 13-14, The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified His servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release Him. But you denied the Holy and Righteous One and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. Notice how Peter frames it? You asked for a murderer in exchange for the Righteous one, the holy one, the sinless one. We read this earlier in our time of confession, Hebrews 4.15. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Jesus never once sinned. 1 Peter 2.22-23. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. And just one more for you in case you want to know where I get all these scriptures about his perfection. 1 John 3, 5, you know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. Let me ask you a deep question. Maybe not a deep question, but an interesting question. When did your salvation begin? When did your salvation begin? Was it when Jesus died on the cross for your sins? Was it when he rose again? Or did your salvation begin the moment Jesus was born of a virgin? Your salvation began the moment Jesus was born. You know why? 
because he was born sinless. He was born perfect. And in order for him to be qualified to eventually die on the cross, he had to be perfect. So your salvation started the moment Jesus was born. You are saved just as much by his sacrificial death as you are by his perfect life. Because if he did not have a perfect life, he could not be qualified to die on the cross for us. So he lived the perfect life that we never could have lived. Aren't you thankful that Jesus did that? Anybody here ever going to live a perfect life? No. Jesus did it in our place. He's the innocent spotless, pure Lamb of God. 1 Peter 1, 18-19 Knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, so what were we bought with? What were we ransomed with? We were ransomed, we were bought with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. So first wonderful truth this Christmas, Jesus lived the perfect life we could never live. But truth number two, Jesus died the substitutionary death we should have died. I want you to think about Barabbas for a moment. All we know about him is what? Two things. He's an insurrectionist and he's a murderer. He's a political threat. He's a terrorist. And what happens to him? He gets to walk out scot-free. He's guilty. Everybody knows he's guilty. Jesus is innocent, and yet Jesus has to go to the cross. It makes no sense. Think about this about Barabbas. Barabbas was the only man in history who could say that Jesus physically took his place. Jesus physically died in the place of Barabbas, literally, because Barabbas should have died. And they released Barabbas and they put Jesus in the exchange in the place of the guilty. Barabbas deserved the full punishment due being a murderer and a terrorist. He should have died the death. He gets off scot-free. And who dies instead? Jesus as a substitute in the place of. You think about the death of Jesus Jesus died the death we should have died. Romans 5, 8 through 9. God showed his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we've now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Christ died for us. Now there's, a, there's power in that little Greek preposition for. It's huper in the Greek text. If you want to learn Greek this morning, huper. That word for means in the place of, as a substitute for, in the stead. You see it in Galatians 3.13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree. And just read it again. Matthew, I mean, sorry, 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake, in our place, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now what does it mean that Jesus became sin? Or Jesus became a curse for us? What, what does it really mean? Well, it doesn't mean that Jesus became a sinner. Obviously that can't be true. He can't become a sinner. 
What it means is, at the moment that Jesus was dying on the cross, all of our sins were credited or imputed or or put upon him so that he was treated as if he was a sinner, even though he was not, and God judged him for our sin, not his. He hung there on the cross being treated as a sinner, even though he was not a sinner, because our sins were credited to him. That's why Matthew records it this way in Matthew 27, 45-46. Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lemma sekbachthani, that is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you abandoned me? In those moments where Jesus felt abandoned, felt forsaken, he was taking upon our sins in our place as our substitute. And God was treating Jesus as if he was the worst of sinners. And this is staggering because Jesus never once sinned. And in those dark moments of hanging on the cross, his experience was that of being punished for sin, not his own, but ours. 1 Peter 2.24 says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you've been healed. You guys ever seen one of these little name tags before? Hello, my name is... When I was a youth pastor, we went to camp one year down in Glorietta where our youth have been many times. And the camp pastor that year gave all the kids a hello, my name is. And they all had Sharpies, and they had to write on there, hello, my name's Barabbas. And they had to put the little name tag on that day of camp and walk around, hello, my name's Barabbas. Because here's the truth. If you are a Christian this morning, your name's Barabbas. Because what's true of you? You deserve to die. I deserve to be punished. I was a vile and wicked, treacherous man who did not deserve anything but the death penalty. All of us were on spiritual death row. All of us were like Barabbas. But what happened? Who goes to our death for us? Jesus goes to the cross. Jesus dies in our place. And what happens to Barabbas? He gets to get off scot-free. He doesn't have to experience the death. So this was a visual reminder to the youth as they walked around a camp that Jesus died in my place and I should have died there and I've gotten off scot-free and I'm Barabbas. It was a visual reminder to say, Jesus died in my place. I should have been the one to die on that cross. I was on spiritual death row, just like Barabbas. But this great exchange happened to where Jesus took my place and I got to go free. So in a sense, all of us are Barabbas. So when you go to the restaurant this afternoon and somebody asks you, what's your name? My name's Barabbas. What does that mean? You can explain the gospel to them. My name's Barabbas. But there's a third thing in the great exchange. So Jesus lived the perfect life we should have all lived. He died the substitutionary death we should have died. But here's the third thing that happens in this great exchange. Third wonderful truth. Jesus credits us with his righteousness. 
by faith alone. Here's the logical conclusion to this. If Jesus is the perfect, sinless, spotless Lamb of God, and He is our substitute who died in our place, then when we trust Him for salvation, not only do we get to go off scot-free, not only do we get to be forgiven, but here's the beautiful thing of the gospel. We also get His righteousness credited to us. It's a great exchange called justification by faith alone. It comes by faith as a gift. Romans 3.28, For we hold that no one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. You can't work for your salvation. It's only by faith. And then here's one of the most important verses in all the Bible. Romans 4, 4-5. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift but as due. And to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. When you believe, When you trust in Jesus, your sins are credited to Jesus and his righteousness is credited to you. You're justified. You're declared not guilty. You're declared accepted before God. You have peace with God, as Romans 5, 1 through 2 says. Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him we've obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Since we've been justified, since we've been declared not guilty, since we have the righteousness of Christ, we have peace, we have hope, we have assurance. Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You see, in justification there's a great exchange. I know it's a big theological word, justification by faith alone, but it's, there's a great exchange that happens. What's the exchange? Our sins get exchanged to Jesus. His righteousness gets exchanged to us. So two things happen. When our sins get exchanged to Jesus, we are forgiven. But when His righteousness is exchanged to us, we are declared not guilty. We're in a permanent position of being accepted before God the Father. Now let's go back to our text for a moment. Look at verse 14. What does Pilate say? You brought me this man as one who was misleading the people, and after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. God can say the same thing about you. After examining your life, I do not see you guilty of any of the charges that are held against you. Now you may ask yourself, well, how in the world can that happen? How can a holy God examine my life and see that there's no charges held against me? I know I'm a sinner. How can God examine my life and make the legal pronouncement not guilty? Well, here's why God can do that. Because by faith, As a free gift of grace, you've trusted in Jesus and he's given you his righteousness as a gift. And it's permanent and it's lasting. And God can look down upon you and God can say, not guilty. I'm doing a thorough examination of your life and I see Jesus in your place. You get off scot-free. You have my righteousness And I look at you as if you've never sinned and as if you've lived the perfect life that Jesus lived. 
Jesus lived the perfect life that you and I should have lived. Praise the Lord. Jesus died the death you and I should have died. Hello, my name's Brabus. Jesus credited us with his righteousness by faith alone. So what a great exchange. Jesus' perfect life for your pitiful life. Jesus' death instead of your death. Jesus' righteousness instead of your guilt. So as we approach Christmas and we think about these, this great exchange, Jesus for Barabbas, Barabbas for Jesus, I mean, what should it produce in you when you really think about the fact that you should have died the death that Jesus died, but he gave you his righteousness instead? Joy unspeakable? Hope unexplainable? Awe inexplicable? Assurance unwavering? Worship unending? And I could think of no better way to express our gratitude to Jesus for making this great exchange than to celebrate the Lord's Supper. As we come to the Lord's Supper this morning, what we're doing is we're expressing an unwavering hope in Jesus. We're expressing unending worship to Jesus. And we're experiencing unspeakable joy in Jesus. This quote, excuse me, this quote is attributed to Martin Luther. A lot of people don't know if he really said it or not, but I don't care. It's a wonderful quote. And I want you to think about this as we close this morning. When I look at myself, when I look at myself, I don't see how I can be saved. When I look at Christ, I don't see how I can be lost. When I look at myself, I don't see how I can be saved. But when I look at Christ, I don't know how I can be lost. What wonderful words of assurance as we think about what Jesus has accomplished for us this Christmas season. So let me ask you to bow your heads this morning as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper together as a church family. a few moments praising Jesus for living the perfect life that you could never live. Spend a few moments praising Jesus for dying the death you should have died. Now would you praise Jesus for giving you his righteousness as a gift by faith alone. As we come today to your table with thankfulness, we, we, we think about this scene and it's burned in our heads how Barabbas could have gone free while you went to the cross when you were innocent. We look at this exchange 
of a wicked and vile man for the perfect son of God. And in this exchange of Barabbas for you, Jesus, we see ourselves because we are Barabbas. We deserve to be punished. We deserve to go to spiritual death row because of our sin. We deserved all of it. And yet, Jesus, you willingly went to the cross in our place. You died so that we could go scot-free. You died so that we could be not guilty. And for that, we are forever thankful and grateful. And so, Lord, as we celebrate your supper this morning, help it just be an act of worship, an act of joy, an act of thankfulness, expressing our gratitude for what you've done for us in our salvation. We love you, Jesus. We honor you. Let this just be a sweet time of communion together with you as our Lord and also together with our church family, our brothers and sisters. Thank you, Jesus, and we ask this in your name. Amen. The first Sunday of every month, we do take the Lord's Supper here to Manuel and just a couple of things.